Lord, we come to you because we need to hear your words to know how you want us to live for our good and your glory. So would you guide what I say, that it would be faithful to your word and that it would help us. Lord, you know this morning some need encouragement to continue on. Some need uh, rest for the pain of the past. Some need just instruction on how you would guide us. And so, Lord, whatever each need is, would you, by your Spirit, use these words to do your work. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in 2010, Mark Smith, a professor, political science professor at the University of Washington, wrote an article entitled, The Missing Culture War in America. You're probably familiar with the culture wars, the battles over issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. And these battles have been fought due to the fact that many Americans, such as us, believe that we should follow the Bible. And the teachings are quite clear. However, Smith argued that there's another cultural issue in which the Bible is clear, but for some reason there is no cultural war about it. And that is divorce. We don't see people picketing or seeking new legislation for tighter divorce requirements. We don't get conservative organizations sending us emails with concern about the future due to divorce culture ruining our country. The reason why is tied to a conversation I had almost 15 years ago when I was still a math teacher. A good friend, fellow teacher, came up to me on a Monday quite in a gas that the day before her pastor had preached a message about divorce. In her words, he can't do that. Doesn't he know how many divorced people are in the church? Well, whether she intended this meaning or not, she was saying that the church must only talk about those issues and sins that they don't deal with. Church is the place where you come to be affirmed and encouraged. And the pastor has to be careful because if he doesn't do that, well, people are going to stop giving. They're going to stop coming. And perhaps you wouldn't say it either, but that's what you want from church. You hope to come each week reaffirm that you have taken all the right theological and cultural positions. Affirm that yes, you and me, we are the righteous people in this world and we must be concerned about those wicked, horrible people out there in the world. You know, the abortionists, the advocates for LGBTQ issues. Well, that's not what we're here to do and that's not the message of the Bible nor Jesus. We don't gather to reaffirm how wonderful we are, but we gather to hear from God. We gather and confess that, in fact, we're unworthy of God's love and grace, but Jesus makes us worthy. And at times, that means hearing truths and commands that run counter to how we live. You know, isn't that why conservative groups have not talked about divorce? They know that to do so would alienate many of their donors. So my aim this morning is not to start a new cultural war, though perhaps that we need one, Rather, it's to proclaim God's word in regards to divorce and remarriage. But that being said, I know that for most of us in here, this is not just an academic discussion. The topic of divorce, the divorce you've endured or someone close to you has endured, brings a flood of emotions, pain, and heartache. You've dealt with sleepless nights feelings of despair, fear of the future, fear of what people will say about you. And so I don't speak this morning to add another layer of guilt, but rather by 
God's grace to speak the truth in love so that we can know how God wants us to live in light of this. So to do this, we plan to look at three things. You can see this outline on the back of the bulletin. First, divorce and remarriage due to adultery, looking at two passages in Matthew. Then divorce and remarriage due to abandonment. We'll look at that in 1 Corinthians 7. And then wrapping up by dealing with three broad ways of how we can consider and live with divorce and remarriage. But first, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32. And many of you will know this is right in the middle of Jesus' famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus takes various aspects of the Old Testament law and he expands on their meaning. And in this case, in verse 31, he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, here, Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 24 and God's permitting divorce. <coughs> However, as we'll see here, and then later also in Matthew 19, the people in Jesus' day were twisting. They were manipulating what they were told in Deuteronomy 24 to fit their selfish desires. Well, here in verse 32, Jesus says the only ground for divorcing a spouse is sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality is porneia. You may hear a word we use today, and that can refer to a wide range of sexual unfaithfulness, even ongoing, unrepentant viewing of pornography. But Jesus then shockingly concludes that by the husband getting a sinful divorce, he now makes his divorced wife commit adultery. Now in this, there's an assumption. The assumption is that she remarries and enjoys the benefits of marriage. Thus, if the wronging a divorced party doesn't remarry, they, of course, are not sinning. However, Jesus is stating that since the divorce was not blessed by God, then this new marriage and the intimacy entailed is adultery. And then Jesus reverses this. He says, look, if you marry someone who is wrongly divorced, then you are also entering into an adulterous relationship. Notice that this adultery occurs when a marriage follows a sinful divorce. I believe that Jesus implies that if the divorce was allowed, then so is the remarriage. Now let me just briefly say three broad things, and then we'll see, because this is fleshed out more in Matthew 19. But first, I should note, and you may know this, that as Christians who try to read and live out what God's Word says, we haven't always agreed on this. In fact, there's really kind of three broad views. Some Christians who try to follow God's word say, well, God allows no divorce and no remarriage. They would even say to understand these verses, you have to understand context, and there's actually no allowance for divorce. Second, some Christians say, well, there, yes, there are some divorces that God allows, but you should never remarry. And then third, some would argue God allows some divorces and some remarriages. In my study over the years, I've been convinced of that last view, but I could name Christian leaders that we all respect who hold those various views. And so, as with everything I say, as with everything you believe, you shouldn't believe it because I say it, or Dr. So-and-so that you listen to on the radio, or Pastor So-and-so says it. You should study God's Word 
And you should come to your own conclusion. What is God really saying? And by God's grace, I am teaching that to you. Well, the second broad thing to say is notice that Jesus and the New Testament are very liberating to women. I say that because Jesus did not just say the woman would commit adultery, but also the men. When we turn to 1 Corinthians 7, we'll see that God's laws apply to both. And that's important because that's radically different than that day in which, in their day, a man could get a divorce for just about any reason, but almost no reasons for a woman. The third broad thing is to say that this should make us realize the seriousness of adultery. That I even need to say that may sound odd to many of you. I hope it does sound odd. Yet we live in a culture that encourages open marriages, cohabitation, experimenting as a teen so you get to know yourself. You may have seen a t-shirt. It has a bride and a groom and kind of a video game graphic. And on the top of them it says, game over. The idea that monogamy, that marriage is monotony. Well, that is... A complete lie. As I shared a few weeks ago when we started this kind of little mini-series on marriage from Ephesians 5, studies show that the most satisfied couples in this regard are conservative, committed, religious couples. Yet nonetheless, our culture believes the lie. So we need to consider, what's the big deal with wanting to just go have some fun? Well, Proverbs 6.32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Well, why does it say that? Well, it says it because God made us so that having sex with another person creates a bond. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17, 15 through 17, says that when a man joins with a woman, they become one flesh. They create a bond that could be considered like gluing two sheets of paper together. And then what happens if you take two sheets of dried glue together and try and pull them apart? Well, you tear a little bit from both of them. They don't rip apart cleanly, but both are hurt and damaged. Likewise, when one commits adultery or fornication, a bit of them is being ripped and torn. They are destroying themselves bit by bit by attaching and then reattaching themselves from people. Now, tragically, you may know people who could say, doesn't mean anything to me. And they might be right. But that would be like listening to the person who can put their hands in the fire because they've destroyed their nerve endings and saying, well, it doesn't hurt them, so why don't we just do it too? God has made it so that we should be hurt when we sin in this way. And we can even see how powerful sex is by the fact that when God wanted to describe the horror of sin, he used the image of, adultery. For example, Jeremiah 3.8 says, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet treacherous Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the harlot. Thus, sexual sin deeply harms the marriage. And sadly, we have to recognize that. And having said that, we must pray for God's grace because but for the grace of God, go I. You know, every Christian was, must heed the warning of 1 Corinthians 10.12. Therefore, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. We can lack sense. We can destroy ourselves. So may God 
have mercy on us. But to understand divorce and remarriage more, let's turn over a few chapters, several chapters, to Matthew 19, which was read for us earlier. Here, Jesus is going to give very similar teaching, but he expands upon it. And it all begins when the Pharisees ask Jesus a trick question about the legality of divorce for any reason. Now, this was a trick question because at that time, there were two main views among the Jews about divorce. One group, following, following a rabbi named Hillel, would say that you could get a divorce for literally almost any reason. If your wife burns your dinner, you can get a divorce. If she puts too much salt on the food, you can get a divorce. If you don't like your mother-in-law, you can get a divorce. The other view was much stricter. They said, no, you can only get a divorce for adultery. But not only was there the issue amongst the Jews, but you may have noticed that it began, this section began, Jesus, when he finished these things, went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. Well, who's over Judea? Herod. Why had John the Baptist just been put to death? Because he was saying that your relationship is immoral. So the Pharisees aren't going to be too upset if they can get Jesus to publicly say something that then gets him in the crosshairs of Herod. But Jesus avoids the whole trap by responding with a question in verse 4. Have you not read? Now notice something very important here. Jesus believes you can read the Bible and understand it. Now, that's not really that radical a claim, but some people act like you can't do that. Like, well, there's many opinions on that, and we can't... Well, no. Jesus believed you could read and you could understand. And so he could just say to them, well, have you not read? Yes, there are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand. But the clear teachings, the main teachings, are clear that anyone can understand. And well, in this case, Jesus quotes from Genesis 1.27, that God from the beginning made us male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, that the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And Jesus then concludes from this that what God has joined, man should not separate. You know, it's really kind of a mystery. You get there at your wedding, and you think, I'm choosing her, she's choosing me, and yet in the mystery, God is the one who has joined you together. You see, if marriage were just your choosing, then you could choose to get out of it. But since God joins people, no one should separate the marriage except God allowing it to be separated. As John Murray writes, divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved by the hand of God. Like our marriage vows say, God intends us to stick together until death do us part. And whether we realize God's hand in joining us in marriage is there or not, you know, we all affirm that our responsibility is to God because we make our vows before God and these witnesses. You know, as we call upon God, we in our marriage say, God, we want you to be a witness, to oversee our marriage. And yet the odd thing is, many people want the church. They want God's blessing on their marriage. They think they need that, but then when they want a divorce... Well, the church shouldn't say anything about that. That's none of their business. That's the court's business. Well, if you need God to begin the marriage, you need God to end the marriage. And Jesus makes clear that to understand divorce is to understand that God joins marriage and we are accountable to him. Well, the Pharisees respond 
by asking about Deuteronomy 24 and why Moses commanded, note that word, commanded them to write a certificate of divorce and leave their spouse. Well, Jesus just responds back, you know, Moses didn't command you to do that. He was allowing you to do that. But from the beginning, that's not what God intended. You have sin had never entered the world through Adam and Eve. There would never be any divorce. You know, the issue here is what he says in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but not from the beginning. You see, the issue is that they don't want to obey. It's not that they don't know what to obey. And the issue remains much the same today. For as we noted in the beginning, there is no culture war about divorce. As you know, sadly, the divorce rate amongst Christians is similar to those who aren't Christians. Of course, there are exceptions, but broadly it's true that Christians just want to do what they want to do. Well, Jesus continues, and like he said in Matthew 5, he declares that unless a spouse has been sexually unfaithful, then the divorce is wrong. As with before, I think the implication includes that if the divorce was for sexual unfaithfulness, then a remarriage would also be fine. But notice how the disciples respond. Verse 10, The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Even in Jesus' day, they didn't say, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, yes, this is the way we want it to be. Like, that's hard. You know, that's a really hard teaching. And it was hard then, and it is hard now. Hard not to understand. Hard to live out. So Jesus' teaching is simple. It's clear. Divorce is not part of God's design, for he intended marriage to last a lifetime. In fact, in Malachi 2.16, it says God hates divorce. However, though divorce is not God's design, he does allow and govern it. I read earlier from Jeremiah 3.8, and you may have noticed that in the midst of that, God said, for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. God divorced Israel. So yes, there are real exceptions and times in which God allows and governs divorce. But is this really the only time a divorce is allowed? Well, we need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because we see there Paul expands and talks about divorce for abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll look at verses 10 through 16. Now, we read all of this last week, great chapter that deals with many aspects and many parts of marriage singleness relationships in marriage whether you should get married but here he focuses in verses 10 through 16 on divorce it reads to the married i give this charge not i but the lord the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife to the rest i say i not the lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here, this is our second section, divorce and remarriage due to abandonment. And Paul really deals with two separate marital relationships. The first is two believers that are married to one another. And the second is the marriage that after the marriage, one of them becomes a Christian. Well, in the first case, if the two Christians are married, then he refers to what we just looked at, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. He says that they should follow Jesus' teachings. That what, that's what he means in verse 10. Not I, but the Lord. He's saying Jesus just gave this command. You want to read it? Go back to Matthew 5. Go back to Matthew 19 and see what it says. And so we've looked at that. The second discussion, verses 12 through 16, deals with that situation where they're married and one of them then becomes a believer. Now, we're not given their thoughts, but I think probably what was going through their minds was something like this. Right before this, in 1 Corinthians 6, they're told that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They were told that to join with someone is to become one. So wouldn't it be wrong if the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and in marriage I become one with someone, to unite the Holy Spirit with someone Who's unclean? So wouldn't it be better if I'm a believer not to stay with an unbeliever? It's making me unholy and defiling the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul's going to say actually the opposite of that is the case. And he begins by saying in verses 12 through 13 that if the unbelieving spouse desires to stay married, they should not divorce. And we need to pause for one second because notice a phrase used in there that has tripped many people up. He says, I, not the Lord. Now this makes people wonder, is this inspired by God or is this merely Paul's own opinion? Some have then taken this and applied it to other portions of Paul's writings and argued that, look, this is showing that none of his writings are inspired. It's all his own opinions. Well, I see my, why people might say that. We have to realize that's not his point. You've got to remember what he just did. In verse 10, he was saying, not I, but the Lord. So there, in verse 10, he was saying, look, this is clearly from the teachings of Jesus. Now, he's taking an issue that Jesus did not directly speak to. And he's saying, look, I'm going to expand on that. Jesus did refer to sexual sin and divorce, but he never made a statement about singleness or divorce amongst a believer and an unbeliever. And so Paul is not saying, well, look, I have my opinion, but you should go check with the Apostle Peter or Apollos or Barnabas. You know, this is my opinion. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he's saying, look, Jesus spoke clearly to these issues. He didn't expand, so I am now doing that. And I think he is saying that clearly because look at the end of this chapter, verse 40. He'll say, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He's saying that tongue-in-cheek. He's saying, look, Y'all all at times think I'm not an apostle, but I've been, got, been given God's spirit to speak God's authoritative word. And we know that because in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So in other words, Paul is not disagreeing with Jesus. Nor is it that Paul's words are not inspired 
Rather, it is that Paul is addressing a unique situation that Jesus did not discuss. Well, back to the main point, though. Paul stated that not only will the unbelieving spouse not make them unholy, but notice verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The believing spouse will sanctify their spouse and children. Now, to understand this, we really have to remember the context of Corinthians wrongly believing that their unbelieving spouse was making them unholy. And Paul is arguing the opposite, that in some way, God sets apart the spouse and children of a believer. Now, of course, we know from the rest of Scripture that each person must individually trust in Christ to be made holy and righteous. You're not holy and righteous because your spouse trusts in Christ. You're not holy and righteous because your parents love Christ. Rather, each person must trust Christ to be holy. And Paul is not teaching opposite of that. Rather, he's saying that a believer has a positive influence on their family. In fact, he'll end this little section of verse 16 saying, God may use the believing spouse to lead the unbelieving spouse to faith. Yet notice if the unbelieving spouse separates, verse 15, if they seek a divorce, then the believer, notice what it says, can let it be so. In fact, it says they are not enslaved. In other words, you don't have to sit there and fight for it and say, I know you want a divorce, but I'm a Christian. I can't let that happen. No, they are free. They're not enslaved. They can say, I would love this to work out. I would love for us to get married, stay married, but if you really want to go, I'm not going to fight it. Well, why does God allow this? Verse 16, God has called us to peace. Thus, you don't have to fight your unbelieving spouse to stay if they want to go. You don't need to feel guilt that you've sinned against God if you did not want the divorce. Thus, we have clear warrant to allow divorce for sexual sin or abandonment. However are, there, however, are there no other situations? Well, I would say this is one of the hardest areas pastorally and theologically. There are no other clear statements that allow for divorce. However, I think we should be concerned about a certain pharisaical reading of God's word that tells people who are starving on the Sabbath, you can't pluck off heads of grain. That tells people... You can't leap for joy and carry your pallet because it's the Sabbath. And yet Jesus clearly rebuked that type of reading of the law. You know, Jesus clearly showed we need to understand the spirit of the law along with the letter of the law. At the same time, I fully recognize that's a slippery slope. Because you can mold, twist, and shape the spirit of the law so that you no longer even recognize what the law said. You know, after we hear what the Bible says about divorce, we in some level should be saying with the disciples, it'd be better than just not to marry. In other words, we should realize divorce should be an extremely rare reality, though God does allow it at times. Now, I could spin off a dozen different situations, and we could sit here and say, well, what about this? What about that? But let me just mention one that is always brought up, and I have some experience not personally with, and that is abuse. I have a friend in Ohio whose wife literally went mentally insane. She took their youngest of four children, drove away, fled, 
and was living out of their car. When he found them weeks later, his daughter had not had a bath in weeks and no longer had any shoes. When he sought legal help, they told him, well, there's really not much you can do because you're married and she's the parent of the child. And so if she wants to go around and drive her in a car, that's her legal right. The only recourse you have is to get a divorce. And I think he did the right thing to get a divorce. But Jesus didn't say that was allowed. I know. And I think we should realize how serious it is to say it's allowable. Jesus even warns in James 3 that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Yet as we saw in the sermon about the role of the wife, what did Abigail do when she saw destruction coming upon her family? She went out to David and averted the destruction going against the leader in her life, and she was praised for it. What did the Apostle Paul, what did Moses, what did Jesus do at times when the leaders over them came to kill them? They fled. And so I would argue that by implication, though not clear statement of Scripture, by the actions of Jesus, Paul, and others, that there are times where you could get a divorce so that you are not, or your children are not, destroyed. With that being said, we must realize that is an extreme exception, not the norm. Let me briefly state some common, but not God-sanctioned reasons for divorce. Just because you prayed about it, you felt led by the Spirit of God to do it, you had a clear conscience, that doesn't mean the divorce honors God. Incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, emotional separation, loss of affection, and falling out of love does not warrant a divorce. Your spouse being a huge disappointment, a poor provider, horrible with finances, or having not taken care of themselves physically does not mean God says divorce is fine. Having married too young, being unhappy, or even having all your friends and family encouraging you to divorce does not mean God would approve of it. Like murder, theft, coveting, to get a divorce without God's allowance is a sin. Whoa, whoa, pastor, you can't say that. Who are you to say that's a sin? That's between them and God. Well, the truth is I'm nobody. You really shouldn't care what I say unless what I say is coming from God's word. You know, my charge is to teach us to observe all that God has commanded us. And if he has commanded us these things, then you need to convince me and others that that's not what God commanded us, and then we will teach that as well. And this really gets to the core of being a Christian. Who is the authority in your life? In the last couple of months, I was listening to this interview of one of the most scholarly men regarding Christianity. He knows 15 languages. He's written his own translation of the New Testament. It's in print. And yet he said, if you come up against a teaching that is repugnant to your moral reasoning, then it would be deplorable of you to choose to believe it. He's basically saying, look, if you come as you're reading in the Bible and you go, I don't think that's right. Well, then you should just say, no, I'm not going to agree with that one. And yet that is making God in our own image. That's saying, God, I want you to affirm everything that I agree with. And I'm going to agree with you until I don't. And then I'm the authority and I get to dictate in this area and that area. That's right and wrong. If God is our authority, 
then we need to follow him whether we like it or not. Whether we find his commands easy or hard. And we need to pray, God, would you help us to rightly understand, to see the good you have for us in this command. Yet why in the world would God want us to stay in all those horrible circumstances I just mentioned that people give as reasons for divorce? And we should not minimize how horrible all those situations can be. It's because as Ephesians 5 makes clear, marriage mirrors Christ's sacrificial love for the church and the church's joyful response of obedience to Christ. When we stay in those trying circumstances, we reflect to the world God's faithful love to wandering, unlovable people like us. We paint a picture with our lives that our words can't always describe. And that is that we serve an amazing, faithful God. The reality, though, is that, as you know, we're not just talking about theoretical ideas. We're not just talking academically. You know, and I know many of you are grieving, have grieved, and do still grieve over the divorces, the pain in your life that has happened due to marriage and divorce. So let me end with kind of three broad things dealing with divorce and remarriage, knowing that I'm only scratching the surface. And so please, if you need help, talk to me, Keith, one of the women in the church, and get help. But first, in our last section, dealing with divorce and remarriage, first, we need to say that the allowances that God gives for divorce are just that, allowances, not commands. Just because you're allowed to get a divorce does not mean it is a good thing or that you should. The clear emphasis is the limited number of reasons for getting a divorce and that instead you should seek to be faithful, to forgive, and to endure some suffering. One of the most amazing truths is God's willingness to forgive when sinned against. In light of God's great forgiveness, we should then be spurred to act likewise and forgive. In fact, even when God did divorce Israel, as we mentioned, he sought to win her back. Now, that might seem impossible to you. Humanly, all we want against that person who's harmed us is their destruction, their suffering. We hope their life just is miserable. And yet, that should remind us of how God acts. God, instead of exacting the pain on us that we deserve... He put it on his own son. We must remind ourselves over and over of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God's forgiveness, mercy, long-suffering patience, and kindness towards us must be in the forefront of our heart so that we can extend that to others, even our spouse. Well, second, though, realize that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Friends, being divorced doesn't mean that you now walk around with a scarlet D on your chest. I know many of you carry shame, deep guilt over your divorce, even though you are mostly, though not completely, innocent. You are not broken, damaged goods that can no longer serve and please God. Romans twelve eighteen says, So far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. And you were not perfect, but you did your part. 
you were sinned against. And then you can read some of those psalms. It's rather interesting as you read some of the psalms and you see David crying out his innocence. Now David in that is not saying he's a blameless person in all of life. But he's saying in this situation I really was doing what's right. And some of you can say, look, I wanted my marriage to work. I fought for it. And it didn't. And so you don't need to have feelings of guilt. So trust God and his plan, even in this dark, painful relationship and event in your life. Perhaps God will use your divorce the way 2 Corinthians 1 talks about afflictions in general. There it says, Blessed be the God and Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As you have found comfort in God due to being sinned against, as you found hope in God in what appeared to be a hopeless situation, as you were able to trust Him in what seemed like life was over, so now you can share that comfort, hope, and ability to trust God with others. And yet, perhaps you were not the innocent party. And you feel great guilt over your divorce. Well, the response to the sin of wrongful divorce is the same as any sin. Confess and forsake. First John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28.13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Thus, confess your sins to God and whoever you directly sinned against. If possible, seek reconciliation and forsake your sin in every possible way. Well, third and lastly, perhaps right now your marriage is really broken and you are considering divorce. Please, please do not wait until it's too late. As the saying goes, the perfect is often the enemy of the good. You're waiting for the perfect solution. The perfect time to finally tell someone your marriage in trouble. The perfect time to start working on problems. The perfect counselor to come along. And as you're waiting for the perfect that will never come, your marriage is slowly slipping away. Do whatever good you can today to save your marriage. And realize that as your marriage didn't fall apart in a day, a week, or just a month, so in like manner, it's not going to be fully restored in a day, a week, or a month. It will take time. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take humility. And it's going to be very hard, yet it is worth it. It's easy. As an American culture, we are so quick to throw in the towel and quit. You hear these words from Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your marriage maybe hasn't brought you joy in a very long time. Yet rejoice that God has a plan even in suffering. A plan to make you more like Him. To bring you eternal joy and to bring glory to His name. 
You were not just made for pleasure on this earth. You were made for God and you'll give account to him. And 10,000 years from now, we'll heartily affirm the reality of 2 Corinthians 4, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It may seem like your marriage will never have joy again. That there will never be any tenderness. There will never be any spark. And yet one study found that two-thirds of unhappily married adults who chose to stick it out ended up having happier marriages five years later. And conversely, unhappy couples who divorced often were no happier on average than those who stayed together. Thus, for obedience to God, for your holiness, for your joy, don't throw in the towel. Uh, the church I grew up in, I was there basically all my elementary and high school years. We had a close friend whose marriage, we didn't know had any problems with it. Until one day she moved out, moved to Dallas, and was unwilling to move back home until they worked through their problems. Over a year later, many, many counseling sessions, she moved back home, and now 25 years later, she's still happily married. When I was in Ohio, there was a man who was not living as he should. I talked to him. The other pastor talked to him. People in the church talked to him, and he was unwilling to change. His wife finally was willing to say it needs to end, and as a church, we removed him from membership. However, he then came to his senses. He sought forgiveness from his wife and the church, and they now live happily married. Now, I don't tell those stories to say, well, look, if you just put in a little more effort, it's all going to work out. That may not be true. You may, like Christ, like God, pursue Israel, and they say, we don't care. We want to keep pursuing our idolatry. And yet, one thing it will do is it will honor God. And what better words could we one day hear than, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, you know how your word has gone forth and you know how people hear it. So Lord, for those who are grieving, would you bring comfort? Those who need to confess sin, would you give them the grace to do that? To those who just need a hug, or need to know your love, even of all that's happened in their life, would you help them to know your love and grace? Lord, may we share these truths with tenderness. May we realize that it is but for your grace that we would do all the same things and destroy ourselves. So would you help us individually? Would you help us as a church to be faithful to you, being lights in this world? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.